This is The Visionary, a Future You podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You Initiative. We are Maris and Victor, respectively founder and member of the Future EU Initiative and today's hosts of this episode of the Future You podcast. We are joined today by three of the four members of one of our finalist teams of the Future You competition, Naira, Joseph and Dylan. They're all master students of transnational governance at the European University Institute in Florence. And before our recording session today, our guests told us a bit more about what they dedicate their current life to. So let's shortly introduce them to our listeners. So before coming to the European University Institute, Josef graduated with a bachelor's in global studies at the Pompeo Fabra University. Being a student in times like this, He's very much interested in the new democratic avenues of the 21st century and policy innovations at the transnational level. With his master's, he intends to bridge his academic interests with practical realities. In his free time, he likes to spend time with friends and family, if possible, around a big table with lots of food and drinks. So now I'll introduce Moas to you. Moas cannot be here with us today, unfortunately, but I'm sure the other members will represent him well in answering our questions. So Moas is interested in cultural proximities between the Mediterranean countries, democratization, political theory, social democracy, and a good cup of coffee. <laughs> When he's not busy <laughs> coming up with the visionary proposals for EU treaty reform, he likes to read a book, enjoy some music, meet with friends, and family and go on a picnic to discuss ideas. And there are two podcasts that he recommends to our audience. And these are The Regrettable Century and Wind of Change. So I'm introduced briefly Naira, who before studying transnational governance, completed a Bachelor of Philosophy, Politics and Economics in Barcelona and Madrid. She's interested in the role of the great financial crisis and its impact in the workings of the EU, the precariat and the future of work for the youth of today. She recommends checking out the YouTube channel Dottle Vogel, which talks a lot about mental health and the struggles of being young today. And for our Spanish speaking audience, she recommends the podcast Personal y Político by activist Sara Ribeiro. Last but not least, I'll quickly introduce Dylan. He did a Bachelor of Laws in International and European Law at The Hague University of Applied Sciences before starting the master's program at the EUI. In his free time, he likes to read and go for walks and hikes. And for our listeners, he recommends the podcast The Fire These Times and Auf He Bunga Bunga. And there are also two books that he recommends us to read, which are a novel called Death and the Dervish by Mesa Silomovic and a nonfiction title Citizens of Nowhere by Lorenzo Massidi and Nicolo Milanese. First of all, we would like to thank you all very much for being with us today. And before we dive into your EU treaty reform proposal, we would like to learn more about you, your team, what encouraged you to take part in our competition. A first question would be, how did you hear about the future EU competition? And why did you decide to join? 
So all, well, three of us present here are members of the Young EUI Forum on Democracy and Democratic Participation. We were all kind of talking about this at the start of the year in September and well, throughout the year so far. And then I can't remember who actually found the competition, but they posted it in our little WhatsApp group and said, this might be a good thing for us to kind of sharpen our teeth on and have a little fun as well and maybe test out some ideas that we're bringing in the forum. So we decided just, yeah, enter, form a little team. And then we included Moaz because I think he could give a fresh perspective from someone outside of Europe because he grew up and is from Egypt and has very interesting ideas about Europe and democracy. So we included Moaz in this and yeah, and then we just thought it would be a fun little project alongside the serious studies we do at the EUI. <laughs> Does anybody want to add on that? Well, I think maybe what caught our attention the most was the emphasis that you made on doing whatever we want through the reform, be ambitious. And we wanted something that would excite us and we thought maybe would excite someone who's not usually interested in the EU more than what is likely that will happen. So you're super like, let's, let's go big, let's go wild was what really caught our attention. That's very cool. I think it's very interesting also for us to learn about your path and how you actually got where you are at right now. So I think this is very interesting to listen to. Of course, by now we know that you are all EU enthusiasts. So I think our question now would be, why is each of you interested in the future of the EU? I guess it would be much easier to answer these questions in a negative form, right? How come someone could not be interested in the EU because it would take more effort to not be interested in the EU than to be interested. Just by the means of how much, even though you can, you don't need to be a, whatever, a bachelor's degree in European law, European studies, the European Union will play a role in your life from Brussels to wherever you are in the continent. It's going to have an impact. And it doesn't have to be about whatever agricultural cohesion, boring policy. When I say boring policy, I would mean something that is not particularly interested for a day to day. And I guess somehow um, with, with the COVID uh, pandemic and the COVID management, for the good or for the bad, we have had somehow the need to look up for responses more beyond our respective member states. There, there has been this reality check and reality need of the EU stepping up for the good or for the bad. And if there is good stuff and there is, has been flaws and there is, has been mistakes, as as it every process, but I think there is big lessons to take from the last year. And also, I think it's no coincidence that we're all from the periphery kind of of the EU, either inside or outside in the case of MOAS. So I think we've really felt the idea that the youth in our countries has of Europe is very different than the idea of Europe that people in France, in Germany have of the EU. So I think this really moves us to kind of push for a case. I'm just mostly agree with Naira and Joseph that it has such a huge impact on our everyday lives. And we've seen since the foundation of the Colossal community that every 10, 20 years that it has more and more power. So we're still all in our 20s and we have somewhat a vested interest in trying to shape and influence and they make it in our vision as much as we can. Yeah, I think it's just trying to have our voices heard. We could do that within the national arena, but I think it's getting more and more important to do this transnationally and on a European level. Because I guess there is the feeling of uncharted territory. Okay, now we have this whatever confidence on the future of Europe that, of course, again, for all the flaws that it has, 
When we are working in the EU and when we are thinking about these different features in plural for the European Union, there is this sense of what is happening in Brussels hasn't not happened before in the political theory. There is not a, a political theory that can explain the imperfections, the contradictions, the potentialities that EU holds. It's very much exciting for this fact of no one has done it before. Of course, you had the great empires from the Achaemenid imperials, Austro-Hungarian Empire, but like no one has ever put together 27 different polities and somehow created this very interesting, weird, complex, whatever you want to call it, structure of policy structure. And that's what is exciting to us as well when we talk about the EU, that is, we're making our own way here. We have seen you working together as a team and develop super interesting proposal. So you made it to the finals of our competition. And we would like to know about your team dynamic. You already told us a little bit about how you gather it as a team, but we would like to know how was the experience of working as a team? Apparently you were not in the same space. So maybe you can tell us one or other thing our listeners should know about your team and your team dynamics. We worked together during the drafting. So we were in person. We all lived like, well, almost all of us in the student accommodation. So that was really fun. I think the most interesting part of our group is that, you know, that sometimes it's harder to work with the people that are most like you and even think most like you. I feel like we all come from very different schools and backgrounds, but then kind of really agree ideologically in a strange way but then still are able to really discuss and not ever hold back and be like, yeah, I'm not going to go with this if, if I'm not fully on board, if I'm not fully listening to you or understanding you. So I think it's really interesting base of very similar opinions, but also very different between us. And, and that was really fun. And the process of drafting was really, really smooth, actually. We commented on how efficient we were. It was really interesting because working in teams is always hard, but that was really smooth. What do you guys think? Deadlines help. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it wasn't so smooth all the time because we really had the discussion because we had the carte blanche to do whatever we wanted. We we're like, should we do something realistic and uh -huh. very like, you know, an incremental change to the EU to try to make it better? Or should we, for lack of a better word, do a very sexy proposal mm. out in the air, utopian? Yeah, we decided to go with the latter, yeah. but it was very fun to discuss, like Nara was saying, a lot of us, well, most of us, I think, in the team are pretty ideologically similar and have... But there, there are shades and degrees of difference, I would uh, yeah, say. Yeah, like... definitely, like in every group. So I think the closeness, they magnified the differences between our opinions. <laughs> Yes, little for me to add on both Nair and Dylan. I guess just to put in value this plurality and this, this capacity to accommodate different opinions into a single proposal. And I guess, and also very much understand what is the logic of a competition like this, that here, and it was Dylan that you were saying this all over the time, right? guys, this is the time to be bold. If we 22-year-old kids that don't hold any responsibilities cannot think big and outside the box, who are we expecting to do so? That idea really struck me. 
because of course whatever i guess we're going to discuss it later our proposal it is a bit utopian it is a bit idealistic but there is value on that and of course this is our duty in society we cannot expect the boomer generation or whatever you want to call it to amend reality like that it's us it's on us yeah i think we all saw that going for bold and sexy worked out for you guys so um, <laughs> good job on that <laughs> So now that you already kind of pointed towards your proposal, I think we can head there now. So in our first edition, we asked students and researchers of the Civic Alliance to come up with proposals of EU treaty reform to achieve their vision for the future of the EU. Maybe you can now introduce us to your proposed treaty reform. Our proposal was basically to substitute the Council of the EU by a European Senate elected by sortition. So each six months, there will be three people from each member state who were elected and would have a first period of light training and then a boot camp and then serve for a year. And the key would be the kind of intergenerational relation that we devised because each cohort would serve with the former cohort first for six months and then with the next cohort. And then that was kind of devised to ensure a smooth transfer of power. And that's, I think, interesting that we kind of had this clear since the beginning. And then in the final, I remember one of the judges was really interested in this, how do we ensure continuity in this institution? And yeah, I think that is a very powerful thing that we add that maybe we didn't mainstream enough or like point out enough, but it's really inter uh, important. Indeed a very interesting and visionary approach. And you seek to regain the citizenry's trust in the EU and even increasing the interest in processes of policy making inside you. But why do you think that this treaty reform is important both now as well as for the future of the European Union? Well, I think the past couple of years has seen a lot of contestation in Europe when you look at anywhere from any countries of the pigs or in the UK or even in places like France, Germany, Belgium, there's been contestation on the streets or citizen assemblies or citizens trying to get their voices heard. And this hasn't really transferred onto a European level so much. And in 2016 with Brexit and the Eurosceptic party is doing quite well in the last election, there's a certain level of citizens feeling their voices are lacking and how can we get citizens to have their voices heard in Brussels rather than the commission writing legislation and they're going to the parliament and council and you know no one really knowing what happens in Europe and so I think this is important to have people's voices heard. And yes and of course then going back to these European stories that we were explaining on our presentations of like these crisis stories that we that keeps repeating and keeps succeeding every other year in the European Union and how the capitalization of those crises in the European Union has been used not to expand the agency of the people, but to very much reduce it. And this, you can find examples from Greece to Spain of this imposition of policies that were coming from Brussels that as needed as they may be at, at the long term, we look at them and we see profoundly how harmful were for democracies. And then, of course, we were explaining this story of expansion of agency, right? So like from the Constitutional Convention and then Lisbon Treaty and then and then the dialogues and now the Conference of Europe, there is this 
inertia of the European Union really trying to work and reflect on it themselves and expand this agency and somehow acknowledge this original scene of the EU. It was the only way that the European nations found to not kill each other was to take away the decision power from the national assemblies, from the national parliaments, because that was it. But now, of course, that is solved wherever we're not going to have war, I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> But now we could not continue like that. So with like this agency that was once taken has to be given back to the people. And we thought it was an interesting way to propose to, to amend all these patches that we've seen and, and to propose this Senate that can do this work. Exactly. And to build on that, I think something that citizens are a little tired maybe of hearing is of having this consultative, advisory, subsidiary role. Oh, yeah, we, we run one consultation, therefore we have legitimacy to do this. And that's when our proposal is like, no, we need to be inside the institution, sitting at the table, not just hearing, having observatory role, all of this, because it kind of, every time these things kind of try to whitewash and democracy wash, people lose a little bit of faith and a little bit of trust in the institution. So it's kind of all or nothing. Something that's like a little bit isn't really going to cut it at a time of such crisis of legitimacy. Yeah, super interesting. I really loved your proposal. I thought it was very new and visionary, exactly what we asked for. So in your opinion, which are the elements that would be necessary to achieve this reform? I would say the first element is to put it on the agenda and to somehow to build a momentum around and the new forms of participatory democracy. And somehow I see this exercise of the Conference of the Future of Europe, that somehow can, we can build, we can find momentum to propose this stuff. As skeptics as we are about this exercise, uh, the, the press conference of last week with Berzgostav and then and, and the vice president of the council and commission was very much the sky is the limit. That was the big takeaway of the press conference. So now it, it feels like some box has been opened in Brussels and really no one gets to pick what's going to get out of this box. So it's up to us to somehow shape, to somehow influence, to somehow steer the direction of this conference. And again, this is on Berzhofstadt. I never know how to pronounce this guy's name. Berzhofstadt. This guy, Berzhofstadt, he put it very clearly, the sky is the limit. And that's why we feel proposals like us are very much into, in tune with the times because neither you said it, what is it? Extreme times, extreme solutions or something like this. Desperate times, desperate solutions, I think is the saying. I think another element that maybe is very necessary for this would be transnationalization of the public sphere, because kind of in Europe right now, we don't have a transnational public sphere. It's all still confined. So, okay, yeah, there might be Belgians reading French newspapers, but a lot of French people are not reading Italian newspapers or German newspapers. And okay, yes, there's Euroactive, Politico Europe and EU Observer, but I'm not quite sure these newspapers really trickle down to people outside, quote unquote, Brussels bubble. And so in this way, it's so easy for national leaders to just go back and say, oh, Brussels is making us do this unpopular law, even if it's completely not true. So for a European Senate with random citizens from all over Europe, I think to have this working well, I think it's really important to have a public discourse that goes across boundaries, across borders across class borders as well, that everyone can have access to and discuss and really open and form opinions on big important things of the European Union and its future. 
Exactly. And directly related to that, I guess, one thing that we really think is a bigger hurdle that we commented is obviously member states' proposal. It's very hard to imagine that they would accept to give up this sort of power. So that would definitely be a challenge. And then something else that is also such a challenge because it's such a profound, deep, long-term exercise is changing the political culture in many of our countries where people think they're not fit to make these decisions. And I think this is very key and only happens after decades of infantilization and using unnecessarily convoluted language and mechanisms to talk about food, transportation, war. Everyone has an opinion on this. It's not rocket science. So it's this change of you empowering the citizens and letting them know you are fit to make decisions and letting our representatives know we are fit to make decisions. Thank you for all these insights. We are learning a lot here today and turning to our initiative again, Future U is built by and for student engagement on changing the EU for the better. So as you are all students, what do you think is the added value of involving students in the debate on the future of the European Union? Yeah, like we were saying earlier that if we're 22 years old with virtually no responsibility in the world and you know, if we can't be a somewhat radical now, when can we be radical? And maybe it's important to include students in this debate to shift the overture window just a little bit somewhere else, put new ideas from out of the box back in the box, just get, well, one, young people talking about this, two, a lot of my friends don't know who Ursula von der Leyen is, so I can talk to them about this and it can get them also interested and, yeah. you know, having opinions and my friends yeah, watch it. voice heard. So I think, and we're the people generally, us and people younger than us, that have the biggest, say, buy-in to the European Union that we need to, it's going to affect us for the longest time. So we have a, a certain level of interest in being involved. And very much agree with, with you, Dylan. And as much as we look up to an initiative like you guys have put up, which is super cool, which is fantastic, which brings a lot of good stuff, as well we have to think about the added value, but as well about the cost of opportunity that we have when building stuff like that. And we have to somehow be self-reflective with what does it mean to have these kinds of networks that very much go from one elite school to another one, right? Like you guys study in Heritage School, we study in the EUIs, we have Science Po, we have Bocconi. Of course, there is a lot of value and there is a lot of richness into these institutions, but we cannot forget that we are part of an elite here that is very much academically. And of course, not to take any effort from anyone, of course, everyone has worked very hard to get into these schools, but we cannot forget our own privilege and to see that when we are proposing this stuff, we cannot say this is the youth. Like when we are trying to have this expansion of agencies, of course, we the students that study political theory and that are like international relations guys and European studies, there is a lot of people that has a lot to say that it doesn't go to Bocconi, that doesn't go to Hertie School, that doesn't go to the EUI. So definitely when building these kinds of competitions, when building these kinds of initiatives, I think we have to be very conscious that do not create these chambers of echoes that whatever happens here doesn't get out of this very narrow and selected network. This as well is something to take into account, but at the same time clapping for you guys and very much envying what you have achieved. I'm going to take this segue to, to say that specifically to avoid chambers of echo, we need a European Senate that breaks into the institutions. <laughs> <sighs> Very good last words on your own proposal. Okay, 
Last but not least, we are sure that becoming a visionary thinker of the youth future is not the only plan that you have for your future. What are your actual plans for after finishing your studies? That is the question, indeed. I think, at least on my part, no idea whatsoever. I think my plans reach to make it as far as the end of the second year of our master's. And if the pandemic has taught us something, is that there's no point in making long-term plans. Also, if the labor market has told us something, is keep your expectations low. You know, we have many surprises for you. Yeah, I think we're just going to take it slow. Enjoy a lot this year that we have in this wonderful uh, city where we are. And let's see what the future holds. Yeah, I'd be pretty similar to Naira. I don't have any concrete plans. It's getting through the next year, writing my thesis, and then, yeah, open to work in a lot of places in a lot of fields and um, maybe go towards a PhD at some point, but no concrete decisions yeah, made. Yeah, whatever is it. What we have more clear is the how, not the what. It can be like doing a PhD. It can be working in an international institution. It can be working in side projects but what we really have in mind and please let me know if i'm not speaking for everyone but it's we're looking for something that really inspires us and we're looking for these personal meanings right we're people that value very much our time and we're people that value very much our persona so we want to like have a professional whatever professional career that we're gonna have that is meaningful for us first and this can be doing a phd this can be going for internships in Brussels, going even abroad, or even going somewhere else that doesn't have anything to do with EU studies and this stuff. Of course, we cannot limit ourselves like this. But I think definitely one thing that I think we all share is we want to, some maybe even tiny little way, contribute to making yeah. the world better and... As cheesy yeah, as it's... <laughs> but definitely there is an obligation to give back and to leave this place better than we found it. And maybe it's through you proposals or maybe it's through fantastic research or maybe it's about uh, reaching out for family and friends even though we are in whatever eui and stuff we we don't let ourselves narrow our personas to simple policy guys right even though as much as we want as much as we enjoy discussing and as much as we enjoy arguing with naira about <laughs> financial crisis arguing with dylan about the the fiscal policies of Ireland or this kind of stuff. <laughs> As a summary, if you have any ideas, please let us know. That is the answer. <laughs> I was actually hoping you could inspire me what I will do after I'm done with my thesis. <laughs> well, we have a problem here, I think. I'm looking forward to see you all succeed. <laughs> and we would like to thank you, Naira, Josep, and Dylan for being with us today. It has been super interesting and fun to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. And wonderful organization, really, guys. Thank you for your time, guys. Again, great, great, great effort, great energy, great vibes. It was a fantastic process. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us today. It was very cool to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. In the next episode of the Visionary Podcast, we are going to talk to the second finalist team of the Future You competition about their proposal for EU treaty reform. So stay tuned. You listen to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You Initiative. If you want to know more about our initiatives, visit us at futureu-initiative.org.
You listen to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You Initiative. If you want to know more about our initiative, visit us at futureyou-initiative.org.